0: If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Joel? This morning we're going to be reading from one of the most mysterious of the prophets. That's the book of Joel. Again, if you have to use the table of contents, no hard feelings, no judgment. You might want to put your Bible marker, if you have one, uh, right there, because we're going to be in that area for a bit. The book of Joel. This morning we're going to preach really from the whole book, but I'm going to read from Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 17 together. He says in verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will it be again after them. Through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. And with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge. Like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent And leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his chamber and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. And say, spare your people, O Lord. And make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Let's pray to the Lord together. Father, I pray this morning that you would awaken hearts, that you would enliven consciences, that you would cut to the quick. With the word that is so sharp, is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between the bone and the marrow. Father, I pray as the one who is charged with the great responsibility of preaching such a, a grave and solemn text, that Lord, you would allow me to speak with the gentleness of a priest, but the courage of a prophet. And that Lord, through your spirit, you would bring about the desired effect that no preacher can bring about. Lord, I ask unashamedly that you would let us taste something of the revival. That you would let us taste something of Asbury. And that the revival would be proven true through the fruitfulness of repentance over time. We ask these things now in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it's easy for us. When we come to the difficult messages of these minor prophets to think that they were for a different time, a different generation, with a different message. So it's easy for us to come and to hear a message like Joel and maybe first of all think what in the world is he thinking about or talking about and throw it out from, before you get started good. Or you might come to the message of Joel and you might say, yeah but that was for the Old Testament people of God. That was for the Old Covenant. Except, except this is where the big story comes back in. The big story reminds us, the big story compels us to recognize that all of the prophets of the Old Testament are just forerunners of the great prophet that is to come in Christ Jesus himself. That Jesus, we in our day believe that Jesus' message is primarily cliches about love and no judgment and, and acceptance and, and tolerance. But these are cliches. These are, this is a self-esteem gospel that is not found but in snippets of the scriptures when they're taken out of their context. The truth is, is that Jesus talked more frequently and with greater clarity about hell than anyone else in all of the scriptures. That Jesus is one who, as the great prophet, issues warnings and stern warnings, hard warnings, offering potential consequences to his people. One of those is what we read to start our service from the church of Laodicea. Here, as I presented a few weeks ago, I believe that as Jesus is writing to these seven churches, or speaking to these seven churches, he's speaking as the great prophet. And listen to what he says. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so you, you, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is Jesus in the New Testament, after the resurrection, after Pentecost, speaking to the church, stern warnings. that I recognize That even among my people today, their passion for my glory has cooled. That they are lukewarm, sleepwalking through their fate, sleepwalking through their lives as though they will not ultimately give an account for who they are. Perhaps there's no two terms better to describe the 21st century than those two. Lukewarm and sleepwalking. We look around us, it's not hard to, to believe. We, we live right here on the buckle of the Bible belt. And he, even here, even here where everybody claims to be a Christian, what we look around and see is pervasive immoralities, sleepwalking, lukewarm people whose names are on a church attendance roll, but whose hearts are far from the Lord Jesus. This is the message of Joel. This is the message of Joel to the people of Judah. We don't know a lot about Joel. We know that, that Joel, remember I told you the, the kingdom, uh, that the Israel is two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom, that's Israel or Ephraim. You have the southern kingdom, the, the kingdom of, of, of David, Judah. We know that Joel was a preacher, a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. But we don't know a lot about the time. It could have been uh, post-exile, it could have been pre-exile. But the message is clear enough. That God has charged Joel with a message to wake up his slumbering, sleepwalking, lukewarm people. So I think from the book of Joel we get three questions that I want us to ask of ourselves this morning. The first question that I want us to ask is, how easily will you awaken? How easily will you awaken? Listen, we didn't read this in the beginning. And I want to go back and read now. Joel chapter 1. Just read the, verse, the first five verses. And that helps you get uh, really the context into which he's speaking. Listen to what he says. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, hear this, you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your father? In other words, this is unprecedented. How many times have we heard unprecedented in the last three years? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another ch- children what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten, what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and well, all you drinkers of wine, because, you, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. You know, locusts have been known to be incredibly devastating, especially to economies that are built on agriculture. It's said that one swarm of locusts can destroy in a single day enough food for, to feed 40,000 people for a year. In fact, there was a visitation of locusts in Ethiopia back in the 1950s that destroyed so many metric tons of grain that it caused a famine in which one million people didn't have the food that they needed for an entire year. 365 day period in fact we know something about this here in Alabama if you go down to Enterprise Alabama what you'll find there is something that is a particularly strange sight and that causes everybody to raise their eyebrows at us a little bit there's a statue to an insect the boll weevil right Because the infestation of the locust, of the boll weevil, nearly completely destroyed and crippled the Alabama economy until they realized they could diversify their crops. And now we say the boll weevil taught us quite a lesson. And that's the intention here. That you have Israel, they are an agricultural agrarian society. Everything is built upon their ability to produce a crop. And God had blessed them bountifully. They had more than enough. They were wealthy and rich, just like the Laodiceans. And as their hearts began to cool, as they began to drift off into a sleep, The Lord, to awaken them, sends the locust, and he sends the locust, and it destroys everything so that there's not even enough grain left in Israel for them to offer up grain offerings to the Lord. The worship of the temple is paralyzed. The economy is paralyzed. The families are starving. And this is the setting into which Joel speaks. And Joel's responsibility as the prophet is to help them interpret the circumstances they find themselves in in light of their relationship with God. To interpret the famine, to interpret the plague of the locust through the lens of theology and their relationship with God. So that they might know whether or not God is trying to speak to them or not. And so what Job tells them, is, or no, I'm sorry, what Joel tells them is that they must recognize their discipline. To recognize your discipline. That in other words, what he's wanting them to see, what he's wanting them to see is that God is in fact speaking. You remember what Jesus said to the Laodiceans? He said the reason that you're lukewarm is because you're rich. It's because you have so many of my good gifts. It's because you have so so many material blessings. That you have mistaken my blessing for all of the wealth that you have, but as wealthy as you are, you are actually wretched and pitiable because all of your material possessions, all of your wealth, all of your prosperity has rocked you right to sleep in your faith. This is what Joel is saying. This is what Joel is saying. That here are the people of God and they have been given great blessing from God, great bounty from God. And yet having been given great bounty from God, they despise God and reject God and ignore Him and neglect Him with their hearts. Listen to what he says in verse 5 and you'll see what I'm saying. He says, awake you drunkards, weep and wail all you drinkers of wine. Who is a drunkard? A drunkard is a person who has too much. A drunkard is a person who enjoys the sweetness of the wine too much. He has the money and the means to obtain it. He has the taste and the thirst for it. And the more that he is given, the less satisfied he becomes. He has an insatiable thirst for that which is the gift from the Lord. The the gift to sustain his people has now been taken, not in its place, not as an offering of worship, but as the very center of their lives from the beginning. They have too much. And so the Lord has endeavored by his kindness, because of his love, seeing his people, believing that they are rich when they are actually wretched, to allow them to experience some of the famine that they might know and recognize how pitiable, how wretched they are actually in the eyes of the Lord. Because you see, the Lord, he's not nearly as indifferent about our indifference toward Him as we are. The Lord takes more seriously our love for Christ than we take our love for Christ. And so what Joel is saying is he's looking to the people of Judah and he's saying, will you hear the Lord? Will you hear the message? Will you recognize the discipline? Will you respond to the discipline? Will you seek that, that you, are, you are passed out on all of the riches and wealth of the world, staggering and stammering through this life, indifferent and lukewarm to the goodness of God? Will you wake up out of your stupor I wonder if he's saying that to you this morning. I wonder if he's saying that to you this morning. Your life isn't perfect, but your life may be prosperous. You have so many places to go, and you have so many things to do, and you have so many places to go, and you have so many things to do because you have so much. People who live in famine, people who live in poverty, have nowhere to go. They have no schedule to keep. They have nothing to do. It's our wealth. Could your wealth be rocking you to sleep? Could your prosperity be cooling your heart for the Lord? Could you be drunk on all of the pleasures of this world? On all of the opportunities that present themselves? On all the potential for ambitions and aspirations? Could you be drunk on all of the, all of the indulgences that you find? And this morning could the Lord be saying to you, awake, O oh drunkard. Awake. Is will you recognize that God is talking to you? Because a significant part of the message of Joel is for you to recognize that today is the easiest day for you to turn back. Today. Today is the day that will be the least amount of consequences in your life. In other words, because you are accountable, because you are accountable before the Lord, you will give an account for what you do with what you have and how you live in light of who you know. And if you recognize your discipline and realize that you're accountable, then today is the day that you must turn away. You see, the situation is going to escalate for Judah. And the situation will escalate for us too. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 28, what you see there is you see a list of of blessings and curses, or you might use the word consequences, that's a little more in our natural language, and, and these are related to the covenant, that if the people of God would, and would fully love the Lord their God with all of their heart and with all of their mind and with all of their strength, then they would experience compounding blessings from the Lord, that they would have an intimate relationship with the Lord that would be a display for all of the other nations to see that their God was greater than all of the other gods, and if they would turn their hearts to Him, that He would bless them likewise. But also there were a series of consequences that were there in Deuteronomy 28 that are tied to the covenant. That if their hearts drifted from the Lord, if they began to enjoy the manna, but not God. If they enjoyed the wine, but not God. If they enjoyed the prosperity of the promised land, but not the giver of the promised land. Then there would be an escalating series of consequences. That in the beginning, like every good parent, the Lord would gently call his people back. And with every, dire, with every move further and further away, the more dire the consequences would become. Because the Lord does not want his people to run off the edge of the earth without his intervention. He is too good for that. He loves them too much for that. So here is, here is Joel and he says, blow a trumpet in Zion. Wake up the people. Let them know what is on the horizon. This is a war call that Joel is calling. In fact, you can think about this in the context of what God does with Pharaoh in Exodus. The the plagues come upon Pharaoh for the purpose of softening Pharaoh's heart. But all they do is reveal just exactly how hard his heart is. And every plague builds on the previous one. And every plague is a bit more intense, escalating in its intensity. Well, brothers and sisters, what was the eighth plague? The eighth plague was locusts. What was the ninth plague? So they've already experienced the locusts. The locusts are already there. And then he says there in verse chapter 2, Uh, in chapter 2 verse 2 he says a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and thick darkness like blackness there is spread in other words the situation is going to escalate you're going to go from the 8th plague to the ninth plague but it's going to continue he's going to talk about that there's going to be a great and powerful people that what he sees is on the horizon there is combatants on the horizon there are oceans of armies that are waiting to descend and they are not the Lord's people yet they are called the army of The Lord, Because they will exact the Lord's discipline against his people. That is, if they don't respond to the eighth plague, then the ninth plague of darkness is coming. And if they don't respond to the ninth plague of darkness that is coming, then the tenth plague of death will certainly descend upon them just as it did. Think of it. The people that God delivered through these plagues, he's going to attempt to deliver through these plagues once more. By waking them up. Before, he went after their enemies, that their enemies might know that their God was the true God. But now, the God is going to come against themselves, Israel themselves, with the very same plagues. So that they might wake up, and they might recognize and realize that the Lord is true. That God is going to do whatever it takes to remind us that we are accountable. And the sooner that we recognize it, brothers and sisters, the better off that we are. That's what Jesus is telling to Laodicea in chapter 3, verse 18, when he says, I counsel to buy from me gold refined by the fire, refined through discipline. Refined through suffering, refined through the cross so that you may be rich. You think you're rich, but your sufferings will actually make you rich. You think you're rich, but your discipline will make you rich. And white garments, that's the righteousness of Christ, will be clothed upon you. Hebrews chapter 12 says that he disciplines us that we may share in his holiness. That we may share in his holiness. Brothers and sisters, God will get attention of his people. God will get the attention of his people. That what the prophet Joel shows us is that God is willing to turn his promised land into a wasteland to wake up his slumbering people. That God is willing to turn the promised land into a wasteland to enliven lukewarm hearts. Look around us. We, as the New Testament people of God, are the glimpse into the kingdom We are the place, this morning hearing Andrew leading, I can't even hear Andrew singing, for all the congregation singing around me. and I I close my eyes and I recognize this is what heaven is going to be like. This is what it's going to be like, the assembly of the saints, proclaiming the glory of Christ and the joy of Christ for all eternity with all of our varied bumps and bruises and cuts and scars, healed by the righteousness of Jesus. But what happens when the church falls asleep? And what happens when the church cools off? You look around America. and 2020, through the pandemic, thousands of churches closed their doors. You have what used to be church properties that are turned into trendy bars and community centers. Denominations are splintering. Churches are splitting. We're supposed to be the people that love mercy and walk humbly and do justice, and yet we're the ones that scandalize the headlines with the latest robbery of our people, or indulgence and sexual misconduct. Our children. Oh, our children. They see our lukewarm, impotent, sleepwalking faith, and they think, I want nothing to do with it, and they leave the church by the droves. A reckoning has come to the church. A reckoning has come to the church in which God is turning the promised land into a wasteland to wake up his people. And the sooner that we wake up, the better. The sooner that we wake up to the truth of the gospel and the power of the repentance and the glory of Christ, the sooner our hearts are enlivened with passion and zeal one more time. The better for us, the better for our generation, the better for our kids to follow after us the question that's facing you and I as we read the book of Joel is the question that was facing Judah all those years ago how easily will you awaken how easily will you awaken second question i want you to ask this morning is how long will you presume how long will you presume Notice how he starts there in verse 12. And remember, there's a, there's a now and later concept, right? That, that, that's why we've named it this. So in the now, they're dealing with the locusts. In the now, they're faced with the decision on how they will respond to what they've seen. In the later, the day of the Lord is coming. In the later, the day in the Lord is coming. And they're going to answer to the Lord. They're going to be accountable to the Lord. And so what matters is, what are they going to do about it right now? How are they going to respond today? And so he says there in verse 12, yet Even now, I have. I know I spoke with a lady a few years ago. Her son had completely forsaken her. She wasn't a perfect parent by her own admission, but by the admission of her son, she was a good mom. Not perfect, but good. She loved him. She provided for him a a good upbringing. She gave him opportunities that she was not afforded herself when. She was growing up, and yet her son decided that his life was better without her in it. That his life would be more enjoyable without her in it. And so he completely forsook his mom. And as I was talking to her about that, obviously she's distraught, and she's weeping, and she's broken. And she says this, she says, Cody, everybody tells me to just let him go. Everybody tells me to just let him go. And everybody tells me that one day he's going to come crawling back. And when he comes crawling back, to let him feel some of the pain that I have felt from him. She said, You know, that makes sense, doesn't it? She said, But I can't do it. She said, I can't do it. She said, I'd take him back right now. I'd take him back right now. Because that's my son. And I love him. That's my son. And there's nothing that will ever be done that will keep me from taking back my son. That's the force of yet even now. In light of all that you've done. In light of how lightly you've taken your relationship with Christ. In light of how deep into the world you've gotten drunk On all of the prosperities. In light of all the sleepwalking you've done through this life. Yet even now the Lord will take back his children. Yet even now the Lord will receive you. If only, if only you will repent wholeheartedly. If only you will repent wholeheartedly. He says yet even now declares the Lord return to me with all. All your heart with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Come to me with the fullness of who you are. Come to me broken over what you've done. Come to me repentant with all of your heart, recognizing the division that has come between us, recognizing the foolishness, recognizing how wretched and pitiable you are as you chase after all of the treasures of this world. Come to me full-hearted, repentant, and I will receive you yet Even Now, he goes even deeper in verse 13 and one of the most, probably the most famous phrase from Joel and one of the most beautifully written phrases in the Bible. He says, rend your hearts, not your garments. Israelite people are very expressive people. They don't just say things, they do things to demonstrate what they're saying. So for a Jewish person who's orthodox in their belief and committed to the scriptures... If, if they are filled with grief and with sorrow, what they'll do is they'll take and they will tear their sleeves on their garments. So that you can see that what's happening on the outside is supposed to be emblematic of what's happening on the inside. And this has to do with their relationship with God too. That if they recognize they've, been, they've sinned against the Lord, if they recognize that they've fallen away from the Lord, if they're called in their sins and the Lord brings an awareness that what they would do to mark with a solemnity, with a, to, to mark the gravity of their sins, is they would take and they would shred, tear, rend their garments. And what God says is, I'm not interested in outward displays I'm not interested in you having an emotional moment and tearing your garments and saying it's all going to be better from here. What I'm interested in is if you will tear your heart. If you will break your heart. If you will let your sin against me penetrate who you are so that it shakes you up from the inside. So that you understand the gravity from the inside. So that you understand the severity from the inside. That if you will weep and well and recognize, rend not your garments, rend your hearts. Not that long ago, a young man was sat sitting in my office who had been caught in egregious sin. As he sat in my office, he He was weeping and crying and upset about what he had done, that he had been caught. He hated that it had had financial implications on his life. He hated that it had had relational implications in his marriage. He hated that it had brought implications for his kids. He hated that it had lowered everybody's opinion of him. He hated all of those things. And sitting in my office, he confessed to the fullness of his sin, all of the sins that he could think of, he confessed them to me great severity and seriousness. When he went home that night, he went right back into the same lifestyle he'd been in to begin with. See, that's, that's not what God's interested in this morning. That's not what God is looking for in you this morning. That's not what he's calling us to in Joel when he calls us to be wakened up from our slumber, to be awakened from our drunkenness. He's calling us to a repentance that starts in our hearts, that recognizes our offensiveness to God, that recognizes our distance from God, to recognize that we haven't just sinned against the people around us, we have sinned against the Almighty himself. Look, look, nobody likes their consequences. Everybody hates their consequences. That's not repentance. Everybody loves grace. Everybody loves grace. Everybody loves forgiveness. That's not repentance. Repentance is rightly recognizing your offense toward God and being broken. Not because you've experienced consequences. Not because you want grace. But because you have sinned against the Almighty. And you recognize that it is with the Almighty and the Almighty alone that you must be made right. Have you ever recognized it? Have you ever seen it? Or have you seen it and then let your heart cool? fallen asleep with all of the busyness and prosperity of this life? No, if you want to return to the Lord, yet even now he will receive you if, if, if you will repent wholeheartedly. If, if, if you will return humbly. I love the way that it says in verse 14. Verse 14 he says, Who knows? Who knows? Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a a drink offering. And so here's Joel speaking to the people, and this is a copy and paste. Really, he's just copy and pasted everything that he said about the Lord. All of that he talks about the Lord being uh, returned to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He relents over a disaster. This is a copy and paste from Exodus 34, reminding them of the goodness of God that they're returning to. When after God's people had had sinned against him and given credit to their deliverance to a golden calf, he says, no, 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 I will forgive my people, I will receive my people, yet even now, because of who I am. And so he copies and pastes the message. And now he does it again. From from Jonah chapter 3. Remember, Jonah goes and he preaches to the Ninevites. And preaching to the Ninevites, he, he does what he doesn't want to do, and he sees what he doesn't want to see. The, the Ninevites become broken over their sin. They're cut to the quick by the message of the prophet. And The Ninevites don't have the attitude of presumption that so many of us have. They don't have the attitude of presumption that the prosperity gospel has that in some way that we can repent and put God in our debt. And by putting God in our debt, he has compelled them to forgive us. Instead, the Ninevites there and Joel here look up to the Lord and say, we are repentant. Who knows, perhaps even he will forgive us. There's a great humility in that response, isn't there? To say that God isn't looking down on me and saying, well, those are some pretty good old folks that had a, had a bad time. Or those are, that's a pretty good old guy that, that had a little boo-boo in his life. That's no big deal. But rather to look up and say, I have brought offense to the Almighty. I have sinned against the one who is holy and pure and true. I have sinned against the one whose throne is surrounded in this moment by myriads and myriads saying, Holy, holy, holy. I have brought enmity between me and the one who has given me so much. I have brought division and shame upon the one who has prospered me so greatly. I have loved all of his gifts and I have shamed my father. So who knows? Knowing how good he is, perhaps, perhaps he will forgive me. Perhaps because he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, because not I am good, but because he is so good, because he is so loving, because he is so merciful, I will throw myself upon him, throw myself upon him. It's the opposite of the way that we respond, isn't it? We presume upon grace all the time. One of the markers of a lukewarm heart, one of the markers of a sleepwalking Christian is that they take grace for granted. They take grace for granted. They think, what's the big deal if I sin? He's going to forgive me anyway, right? What difference does it make if my heart is not as in love with Jesus as other people's hearts that I know? He loves me. What difference does it make if I return to that adulterous relationship? What difference does it make if I continue to self-medicate? What difference does it make if I continue to close unethical deals as long as I give something? right? What difference does it make because the grace of the Lord is going to fulfill me. His grace can overcome all of my sins. That is that what we do by taking grace for granted is we minimize the severity of our sins. And by minimizing the severity of our sins, we minimize the price that Christ paid on our behalf. By minimizing the severity of our sins, we minimize the cross itself. And that's why Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, I spew lukewarm believers out of my mouth because they don't make much of Christ. They minimize the cross. So he says, those, this is Jesus in Revelation three nineteen, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Turn back to me. Turn back to me. How long... Will you presume upon the grace of Jesus? How long will you take the grace of Jesus for granted? How long will you sin against the Almighty as though it is no big deal at all? How long will you take for granted the giver of all of the wonderful gifts in your life? How long will you wake up? Will you wake up? Final question. How quickly will you come? How quickly will you come? There's nothing harder in our lives than to come to the realization that we've wasted a significant portion of it. Our lives are passing by quickly. And when you come to the realization that you've taken your life so for granted, you've taken your good fortune so for granted that you have wasted significant minutes, wasted significant hours, significant days, significant weeks, significant months, significant years, it is a penetration of the soul that's hard to articulate. I've been open about the intractable headaches that I had for a five-year period. And one of the things that I thought about most often was how much good health I had wasted. How much good health I have wasted. I think about the prodigal son, and I think about that moment. The prodigal son, he goes home, and he's going to just enslave himself to his father and just be one of his father's servants. You know, it's, it's, being a servant in my father's house is better than being destitute on the street like a beggar. And he goes and his dad runs out and meets him and throws over him his finest garment and throws him a party and pulls him in and undignifies himself by exalting his son and bringing him into himself. And I wonder, I wonder if that prodigal son thought, how many years have I wasted of my father's love? How many years have I wasted of my father's kindness? How many years have I wasted of my father's goodness? And this is Joel's message to Judah. And this is, this is Jesus' message to Laodicea. And this is my message to all of us this morning. How much longer will we waste the good fortune of the Lord? How, much, how long will we waste the kindness of the Lord? How many years will we go until we are returned to our Father's house to enjoy our fellowship with Him? We need to come today, right now, Because there's no good excuse. There's no good excuse. The the day of the Lord is at the forefront. You you could say it is the central theme of the book of Joel. And the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is a day that is, we we often associate with Jesus' return. But throughout the scriptures what we should understand is that there are multiple days of the Lord that are down payments on the ultimate day of the Lord that is to come. So in Joel's day, the day of the Lord is the army that's on the horizon. That is the army of the Lord that's going to take down his people. And it is a time in which God will assert his leadership, his rulership over his people and over this earth. To show that he is great and not to be trifled with. You can go forward and see Babylon and Assyria and Persia. You can see A.D. 70 when the Jews have the, the temple sieged by the Romans and are decimated. These are all days of the Lord. You can think of the fall of Berlin. You could perhaps see even think of the pandemic of 2020 that is worldwide. Days of the Lord that come to say that the reckoning has come, that that we are not in charge, that we are not the bosses, we are not the rulers, but the Lord is. And so Joel is placing all of this in the context, that the day of the Lord is at hand, the reckoning of God is at hand, the account that we're going to give to God is at hand. Will we respond? There's no good excuse not to. That's what we do, isn't it? That's what we do. We always have a reason why today's not the right day to respond. We think, once I graduate, once I get out of college, once my kids grow up, once I'm not so busy at work. Once I, once I close one more unethical deal. Once I have one more uh, hoorah with my mistress. Once my marriage improves. Once my financial situation is better. Once I've coped fully with the trauma of my past. Once I've done all of these things. And Joel is looking to Judah and he's saying no more. No more excuses. Are you nursing? Bring your nursing infant with you. Are you newly married? Come together. Leave the chamber. Did you know that in early Hebrews, there was a law. They didn't even have to enlist in the service of the army for their first year of marriage. That the Hebrew people so exalted the the marriage and the wedding. And so here is Joel saying, no, no, no. This is even more urgent than that. Leave your chamber's bridegroom. Leave your chamber's bride. Come now and repent and return to the Lord. There's no excuse, and there's no better time. That's why he's blowing the trumpet. Today's the day that he has to come. Today's the day. The drunk is always going to sober up tomorrow. The addict is always going to get help tomorrow. The adulterer is always going to end the relationship tomorrow. They're always, you're always going to stop cheating on your test on the next test. You're always going to stop stealing from your work after the next little download. You're always going to end the relationship with pornography after this time. Joel says, the time is out. Blow the trumpet. Today is the day. Today is the day. There are no more excuses. This is exactly what Jesus is saying to Laodicea. To wake them up. To warm their hearts. You see, those who are lukewarm don't want their hearts warmed. And those who are sleepwalking don't want to be woke up. And so the Lord intervenes and Jesus speaks up. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That if you will respond today, if the Lord is speaking to you today, it's a miracle. Do you understand that? These things are spiritually discerned, first. Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, they are not able to be discerned by natural people. They're seen as foolishness to natural eyes. That the Spirit of God has to awaken you to hear from the Word of God. And if the Spirit of God is awakening you to see your sin for all that it is, today is the day to respond. A miracle has happened, and God has broken through to you, and God has awakened your heart, and God has enlivened your conscience. No more excuses. No more delays for the day of the Lord is at hand. My cousin was really apt to sleepwalk. And her family would literally wake up and go down in the morning, and they never knew what room of the house she was going to be in. And she would wake up, and she would be unsure of how she even got there. Well, you know how it is with with home maintenance. They had a a broken latch on the front door. And you could open the door from the inside, but it was locked from the outside. Somebody from inside the house had to open the door. And, you know, they put it off, and it was just wasn't that big of a deal. One night, my cousin, when she was a teenager, she sleptwalked. And she walked outside the house on a particularly cool night. And when she walked outside the house, all of a sudden the, the cold air hitting her against her face woke her up. And she was afraid and she was frightened and being afraid and frightened, she went to go back inside of her father's house. But what she found is that the door would not open. And so she was there left outside screaming and wailing, hoping that her dad could hear her, hoping that somebody in the house would wake up, but nobody, nobody could come. This morning, Jesus says, I've come to naught today. You're sleepwalking. Make sure, make sure that you don't sleepwalk outside of the house only to find yourself woken up by the cold and unable to get back in the house. Today is the day to come home, today is the day to return to the Lord. Yet, even now, He will receive you. Regardless of what you did last night, regardless of what you plan to do this afternoon, regardless of what you did last year or the year before, regardless of how you've lived the last 10 years, yet even now, the Lord will receive you. Let me pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.